0: Dogs are man's best friend. But more than companions in veterinary science, dogs are being studied to develop better cancer treatments that can translate to the clinic. Today, we talk to Dr. Cheryl London from Tufts University. She's a veterinarian and a vet oncologist. We discuss how and why canines are used as model animals for cancer, and how she worked with Nanostring as a part of a consortia to develop the canine IO panel for the encounter and the the hot-off-the-press canine cancer atlas on geomics. This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by NanoString. Here at NanoString, we believe that spatial genomics is at the forefront of discovery and translational biology research. We present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share our initiatives to engage and support them. Dr. London, it's so good to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Could you tell us a bit about yourself, your research focus, and perhaps why canines?
1: So I'm a veterinarian, and I'm also a veterinary oncologist by training. And then following my oncology training in veterinary medicine, I completed a PhD in immunology. And so over the course of my career, I have worked in the context of translational oncology, leveraging spontaneous cancer in dogs as a model of human disease to help advance human therapeutics. Historically, most of my work was in the realm of small molecule inhibitors, but as the role of immuno-oncology really stimulating the immune system to kill cancer cells has grown, my focus has increasingly expanded to my old roots, which is immunology and immuno-oncology. Right now, most of my research focus, particularly in the clinical setting and translational setting is in the realm of immuno-oncology.
0: And can I understand like why the study of disease in canines is so important? Apart from, of course, them being great companions, but how does this differ from perhaps more common model animals that we see, like mice or a zebrafish or rats?
1: So most of the experimental animal models of disease that we use are really phenomenal for working out disease biology, where you can isolate a pathway or a system of interest and dissect it apart. And so that has been instrumental in discovery and identifying targets for therapeutic intervention. But where we've really fallen off is in the translation from experimental models into humans. And in the context of drug development, failure rates remain fairly high. If you're looking at that sort of valley of death from animal model to human, the translational efficiency is really low with over 85% of drugs failing across all diseases. Um, And in cancer, it's estimated that about 15% of drugs that start from that successful animal model application actually make their way through successful human approval, which means that you still have this enormous failure rate in translation. and ultimately that comes down to the fact that even though these animal models are really good at at uh, for us to be able to dissect biology they don't represent human disease in all of its complexities and if you are asking and answering questions about clinical efficacy in an animal model system that doesn't truly recapitulate the human condition then you will invariably fail during that translation for example In the setting of experimental animal models, when we study immuno-oncology therapeutics, most of those models are kept in specific pathogen-free environments. They don't have a history of exposure to various viruses and bacteria that you or I would. Their immune system hasn't been remodeled over time. They also tend to be genetically identical to each other, and that is not the human case unless you're identical twins. particularly in the realm of immuno-oncology, where the immune system can be such a variable component, when you're moving from the system where it's invariant, where all of the immune systems across all of the mice that you're using in a specific experiment are identical, you are going to fail. So hence our interest in dogs. Dogs are live with us. They have an immune system that's exposed to many of the same things that our immune system is, viruses, bacteria, tick-borne disease. It evolves and ages over time. And so it has many of the idiosyncrasies that human immune system does. And so to that end, our hope is that by testing some of these novel immunotherapeutics in dogs, we can be more efficient in our ability to develop therapies that work in that variable landscape.
0: So two things stood out to me. When you said translational efficacy is, efficiency is maybe like under oh, 85%, 85% go to failure. And then you mentioned another statistic that 15% of drugs aren't successful so is it 15%? Is it the inverse of the 85% or is that a further reduction to 15%?
1: No, it, it's the inverse of 85%. So ultimately okay. yeah. about 15% of drugs make it through all the way to approval. Yeah. And so that's a really low efficiency. And mm-hmm. if you were a big business or a company and your efficiency was 15%, then you would be out of business.
0: And I guess to just hammer home what you mentioned about the experimental models, like the controls are not recapitulating the real world. And then, as you mentioned, also like genetic variation, that's a big study of heterogeneity because even as humans, we differ vastly in our genetic makeup, right?
1: Right. So there are a number of variables that are not present in most of the mouse models that are used. So one is genetic variability so that's clearly something that exists in humans. And it is interesting because we do see some genetic silos in dog populations that are breed related, but across the breeds, there's lots of genetic variability. Uh, another big sort of challenge is that in predicting safety signals, there's often a gap between rodent models and humans. For example, mice don't vomit, so that's a huge gap. It's very difficult to assess quality of life in a mouse model and so, drugs that really mice do seem to tolerate, particularly at short term, are very difficult sometimes for humans to tolerate long term. The other really big difference relates to the sort of disease arc. In humans, cancer is a disease that develops typically slowly over time and it is essentially remodeling its host as it develops. So it it grows potentially slowly to begin with. It's remodeling the microenvironment. It may have some immune challenge to begin with that tries to eliminate it, and then it learns to subvert that immune challenge. And so it could be months to years that a tumor grows over time. And that longitudinal course is very difficult to mimic accurately in mice where Typically, cancers are either induced or develop within weeks. And so that disease arc is much more rapid. It's also very difficult in mouse models to recreate that arc of, okay, we have cancer. We treated it. It's in remission. Now it's resistant and now we're treating it with something else and now it's in remission again and now it's resistant and then you're finally relapsing and you have terminal disease. Those sorts of cycles of relapse and remission are not things that are typically modeled at all in rodents.
0: Doing this podcast is something that I've learned of like relapse is typically where you see big differences in patient outcomes because once it's all been remodeled Perhaps even by the same type of cancer, the base state of that tumor microenvironment goes on to so many different branches, and thus, it's very hard to predict. But then with a mouse model, you just don't have that timeline.
1: It's very hard. You, the disease is accelerated for a variety of reasons. One, mm-hmm. you need to get your experiments done. It's also done in young animals. So typically, those mice are four to six weeks of age, which does not really mimic what in humans where most cancer occurs in adults to older individuals.
0: And then I guess as a comparison, how different are the immunological systems between humans and canines, perhaps to say a mouse?
1: That's a good question. One of the things that we've not been able to do until recently has been fully characterize the canine immune system in a way that really has been done on the human and mouse side, and that to a large degree has been due to an absence of tools. One of the big game changers on the human side and mouse side has been the availability of a number of different antibodies that are antigen specific that allow you to characterize the immunophenotype of of animal immune systems. So particularly in mice and in humans, you can take a tumor out and you can identify various subpopulations of immune cells based on their cell surface phenotype. And we have a really limited repertoire of antibodies that are available for us to do that in dogs. So we've moved a little bit beyond that to look at transcriptional profiling of those immune cells. And we're getting a much better sense of what the similarities and differences are. There are key similarities that really are across all species, things like regulatory T cells. Those play a large role in tumor immunosuppression or lack of response to immunotherapeutics. The other thing that we've seen emerge as a theme in cancers on the human side and seems to be a big part of what we see on the canine side is the role of the myeloid lineage in driving immunosuppression in the tumor microenvironment, particularly things like MDSCs, immunosuppressive macrophages, so the M2 macrophages and now neutrophils that have that sort of N2 phenotype. And those do seem to be present in dogs. And that has been, at least in the work that we've been doing, focus of our immunosuppression you know therapeutics really to retool that myeloid lineage to really hopefully take away some of that immunosuppression and give the t cells a little bit more room to move essentially
0: could you discuss any ethical considerations related to the use of dogs for preclinical testing of therapeutic approaches for cancer treatment
1: Sure. So we treat our canine patients, which are pets, and so they're part of a family, much like you would a pediatric patient who cannot consent. So the owners are the ones who are their guardians and take care of them. and we have a process in place where we use informed consent just like you would for a human trial that involved kids and owners have information that they're given that they read through the risks and benefits they it's all voluntary they can leave a study at any time and we do spend a lot of time monitoring their quality of life to ensure that we are not impacting their quality of life during a study so things that would considered when we were in the middle of a clinical trial would be, is the pet's quality of life being impacted in a negative way? Is the disease not responding? And should is there a reason to move the patient off the study because of toxicities or lack of response and engage in other therapies? With respect to ensuring that we have safety, we often have a, lot, a body of preclinical data that has been undertaken for either in in mouse models and often in healthy research dogs before we get into client-owned dogs. So typically we'll have some pharmacokinetic data, we'll have some baseline tolerability data with respect to any agent that we're using before we get into our client-owned animals. And more and more we've been doing much like they do on the human side where phase zero studies we have healthy volunteer to do get a single dose of drugs. So we do phase zero studies for some of the new agents where we have volunteers with a healthy dog who will bring the dog in for a single dose so we can get pharmacokinetic data, that sort of thing. So we do try to get as much data as we can about the safety of an agent before it goes into clinical trial patient. And then we do safeguard their well being through continuous monitoring and everything is done with informed consent.
0: And I suppose an, another question that comes up in my mind is what is the ballpark efficacy with dogs to humans? Or do you have any success stories like that?
1: I can only speak to my experience, which has been that there have been several instances where we have engaged in clinical trials of novel agents in dogs with cancer. And the data from those studies has supported eventual. FDA approval of the drug candidates. So examples include a drug called Sunitinib, which is also known as tent, where we did the initial work in dogs with cancer with the sister drug, which was identical, nearly identical to Sunitinib, called, and it was called Toseranib. So the phase one and two studies that were done in dogs with cancer supported Sunitinib's eventual FDA approval for treating cancer in humans similar story with a drug called selinexor which is approved for use in humans we did work with a nearly identical drug called verdinexor in dogs first and that supported the eventual human approval we actually worked with a monoclonal antibody that was humanized and did some work in dogs with cancer and that antibody has started to move through human clinical trials and actually looks really good and has now finished phase two b studies. So that one will eventually be approved. There are a number of instances where the data we've generated has been included as a supplement, the IND packet, for the novel agents and has helped build confidence on two levels. One, that the drug is going to be safe. Two, that it actually does have efficacy. And this has also helped those companies with respect to fundraising because it's so challenging to sometimes get the funds that you need to move forward into larger human clinical trials.
0: And I think that's also talking about the point where perhaps the knowledge of targets for human and mouse have developed so much just because those were where the funding was going, but with all of this supporting the need and the effectiveness of, of using canines as potential models to then get the funding that's required.
1: Yeah. I think. I think it's important to recognize that no one model is ever going to effectively recapitulate human disease and sometimes humans don't even recapitulate their own disease because of their vari- variability. I think you have to build levels of evidence regarding the effectiveness of an approach and it in in it's an iterative process and every approach that you use may require different model elements that range from in vitro to organ on a chip to a genetically engineered mouse model to potentially including dogs. There may be situations where there isn't an appropriate dog model. I think it's just important that it's to recognize that it's just a part of the whole translational enterprise and we're hoping to add additional data into the system that enhances that translational
0: success. So, yeah, really just not leaving any avenues undiscovered and untested. Moving on, could I ask how you came to work with Nanostring?
1: Oh my gosh. So, we came to work with Nanostring through a roundabout way. At the Comedy School of Veterinary Medicine, we have a longstanding interest in translational medicine that leverages spontaneous disease and experimental models of disease in veterinary medicine to improve both the care of animals but also the care of humans. We have a growing uh, cohort of junior faculty who are engaged in this very uh, realm, which is comparative and translational research. And many of them do uh, basic Research pathology that includes multi parameter evaluation of histopathologic specimens as well as comparative genetics. In 2020, we put a grant into the Mass Life Science Foundation, which is a foundation in Massachusetts that is. has a number of grant opportunities that are meant to stimulate the biomedical research enterprise in the state of Massachusetts. And one of those is a research infrastructure program, and that was a matching grant program where we had the ability to create a new resource in which Mass Life Science Center would provide the funds to buy new equipment for that resource, and we had to match it with the same amount of funds from our side. So we had recently renovated one of our research buildings, and that served as the match. And that research space was really designed to house both research pathology equipment as well as genomics equipment. And so in this grant application, we put a request in for a number of tools, including Geomics to do spatial profiling as well as encounter. And so, when we were awarded this grant in 2021, when we got the grant and we told NanoString, hey, we got this grant, now we need to work together to create something that we can actually use for all of our species, then that's when we developed this collaborative relationship. And our first thought was, we really need to be able to leverage first the Encounter platform. Now, you can do that one of two ways. You can have custom-designed panels, which others have done, and use the Encounter platform for canine work using custom-designed panels. But we really wanted an immuno-oncology panel that would be readily available off the shelf for people around the country to begin to use in their immuno-oncology studies that involved canines. And I'm sure you're aware that the Cancer Moonshot Mechanism was responsible for jumpstarting some of the immuno-oncology canine translational work. And that came with a set of five grants that were funded as part of the Cancer Moonshot to do translational immuno-oncology work in dogs. Those were funded in 2017 by the NCI. And there was also an organizing center, a U24, that was part of that 5-U01 translational grant mechanism. And there was an opportunity for an administrative supplement that came through a couple of years ago and was essentially driven by the U24 organizing center. And in the context of that administrative supplement, we were able to garner funds to develop the canine IO panel. And so subsequently it's been used quite a bit. We've used it in both of our ongoing U01 funded canine translational studies. So part of it was initiated through this Mass Life Science Center grant that we were awarded and part of it was initiated through the Cancer Moonshot effort.
0: I had a fun question on whether you tried to use WTA on canine samples.
1: So we did. Actually, it wasn't the WTA. I think it was the...
0: Cancer CTA?
1: Yeah, it was the CTA. I can't remember which one and it didn't work. (laughs) So we actually did. It was the CTA that didn't work. And we tried very hard to make that work and it didn't work. And it doesn't really surprise me. You can predict that these things are going to be homologous enough to work, but then in the end, when you've got low transcript numbers and you really need that specificity, it didn't work. But we were able to leverage the panels that we bought for other work that we're doing that involves human specimens.
0: I think you alluded to a little bit in terms of trying to curate targets. What was the process like working with Banastream to develop the panels?
1: So we actually had a consortium of people that came together from the the UK i think there were stakeholders in other countries as well and the US that all contributed we started with the the targets that were most obvious because they were pulled from the existing panels that you guys have so we curated those to include ones that others wanted we tried to get as broad coverage as we could across both the tumor and the immune system in the io panel with the with the goal of having enough room to add a few custom spike-ins for things of interest. So it was was a collaborative process. Everybody weighed in. We ranked targets based on what we thought was important. And then there was a consensus building. So it took a while, but everybody was happy with the final product in the end.
0: And could we talk about perhaps like the first experience working with the I.O. panel for Encounter? And I guess to tag on that question, like what utility have you found with the panel and what samples have you since gone on to investigate with those?
1: So we actually have a paper that's been submitted where we, this is part of one of those Cancer Moonshot funded grants where we had assessed the efficacy of a couple of different therapeutic combinations in the context of canine diffuse large B-cell lymphoma with a goal of creating a regimen that was chemo-light, so was less intense than the typical chemo regimen that's used in both dogs and people called CHOP, and adding in or layering in novel immunotherapeutics on top of an anti-CD20 antibody to identify a regimen that would give us the same outcomes as you get with chemo-intense regimens, but with something that's far less intense and allows you to retreat. And uh, this is largely driven by the fact that survivorship carries with it lots of long-term morbidities for many people. And so the goal was to hopefully minimize some of those morbidities by making more immunotherapy and tensile So we had a couple different approaches and we used the encounter system to query good versus poor responders in terms of what immune what their immune landscape looked like and what was associated with a good versus a poor response to that specific immunotherapeutic regimen and we were able to pull out some really interesting things that were helpful and really told us that the response to the immunotherapeutic combination was really dependent on the type of immunotherapeutic combination that was being used so for example When one of our regimens included a PI3 kinase delta inhibitor, the dogs that did well had high AKT and delta expression in their tumors sort of thing. So there was a nice correlation between the immunotherapeutic approach and the outcome, and that we wouldn't have been able to do without the encounter because you really needed to survey a wide landscape of potential drivers.
0: Was there any follow up, I suppose, with the canine cancer atlas, or is there any plans to do that to see the transcripts localized or the cells that are responsible for those?
1: We just got those in hand, so we are, and we just got the antibodies QC. So the uh, the canine cancer atlas that we're planning on using is. Just It's hot off the press, so we don't have data with that yet, but I anticipate that we'll be doing much of what they're doing on the human side, which is integrating things like single cell with the geomics so that we have both really individual cell transcriptional profiles that can be integrated to their spatial relationship. And we're really excited to start that. We have a number of projects that are underway right now.
0: How do you hope the canine cancer atlas will help forge a deeper understanding of canine TME?
1: It's. Cr- I think there's a lot of data that's now come out of a human side that has made it abundantly clear that what we thought was a specific immune landscape is not necessarily the case, and that the transcriptional profiling is going to give us a much more detailed understanding of who the players are in the immune microenvironments for the cancers that we're using as models of human disease, what genes are being expressed by these cell populations, and how best we can approach Uh, essentially trying to remodel that immune landscape. I think for us, one of the things we're really focused on is understanding the differences in the tumor immune microenvironment at baseline and at relapse. And so we have been, at least at our school, avidly collecting from patients at failure, not just one metastatic lesion, but a host of metastatic lesions from different organs to understand You know, what was different? What is different in the immune landscape when you compare the baseline tumor that was seen versus what you're seeing now in the lung versus the liver versus the bone? And how is the tissue specific microenvironment facilitating escape from immunotherapy? And can we get in it ahead of those sorts of things, if we have a better understanding of how those tissues are facilitating that tumor host microenvironment, can we then use that to our advantage upfront before that relationship has been established?
0: And I suppose, I mean, this is perhaps slightly obvious, but relapse is possible to study because of the longitudinal nature of a dog's life.
1: Yes. So this relapse in our patient population is compressed. So it's not the 20 years or 10 years or five years, but it's typically one to two years during that entire time we're following the patient. So we are collecting samples from them along the way. And that is typically something that consists of peripheral blood mononuclear cells where collecting plasma for liquid biopsy work, that's another big thing that we've been focusing on, is linking changes in the liquid biopsy to organ-specific metastatic disease and changes in the immune landscape. So yes, you can take one patient and longitudinally follow them for years. And that, again, represents a true disease arc that's very difficult to do in mice.
0: And could I get perhaps your first thoughts on spatial multiomics? I think you mentioned the first time that you came to know, work with nanostring, but what about hearing that you had more targets than you knew what to do with?
1: One of the challenges. <laughs> With all the information that we're getting is that, and I think this is a, a problem in data science is that we're getting so much information, we have to learn how to integrate it into the context of the patient. And that's not an easy task. There are you really need data scientists to do that, and you need machine learning to do that. And those algorithms are really important. So one of the coolest things that I saw recently was this program called Astropath, which is, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's a program that leverages the data science used to map the skies and the stars because there's so many of them. And so it's all data science where you're collecting all this data and then you have to map that data and put it in context. And it's really no different when you're looking at a tissue specimen, when you've got you know protein data. You've got potentially RNA scope data. You've got gene expression data. And now that we're going to the single cell level, you're essentially creating millions of data points that need to be put in context of a tissue architecture. And realize, too, that this is a snapshot in time and that we're taking that snapshot, but it is a moving picture. So you layer that sort of movement on top of it. It's dynamic. It changes. So it's It's just exceedingly complicated. And our data science is only beginning to catch up to our ability to take all those data points and integrate them effectively.
0: As you mentioned, the relationship between the skies and stars and perhaps cells within ourselves, it reminds me of that video that explains exponentials, the one that zooms out from a couple and goes all the way out to like the observable universe, and then goes all the way back down, and then all the way down to the atoms of your cells and down to the, to the electrons moving around your protons and neutrons. But as you said, I think we are able to see stars in the sky on a, with a time delta, but I think in patience that's hard to do, especially because we need to keep living.
1: It is very hard to do. I think we're, I think our data science capabilities are rapidly improving and our ability to manage big pots of data is improving as well. It is actually, I think it's hard for people to understand how rapidly this field has evolved. And if you think about where we've come from, and I was doing, when I was in graduate school, I was doing hand sequencing with sequencing gels. And now look at what we can generate in the blink of an eye. And so that's really this has been a really rapid development in technology. And I think it's going to translate into marked improvement in patient outcomes once we're able to synthesize these data sets.
0: Yeah, as you just mentioned gels, it reminds me of an episode I did some time ago with with one of my colleagues and she was saying that one target on radioactive gels could have done your, could have been your whole PhD thesis. Yep. And look at, look at how far we've come. <laughs> look at how far we've come. Yeah. It is
1: pretty amazing. And I think the other thing that these sorts of technologies are going to be critical for is something that our pathologists always talk about, which is getting to the ground truth of the model system, which is that just because it looks like it's the right thing when you look at a tissue specimen, until you actually understand the proteomic and translational or transcriptomic landscape, you can't say that it actually represents the human disease. and That has been the cause of failure for many translational efforts in mouse models of sepsis. Getting to what they call the ground truth of the model is really important because if you don't, if you have the incorrect information or incorrect model system with respect to the the protein and genetic targets, then you are going to fail in translation.
0: I have a controversial question to ask you. Do you sure. feel that do you feel that too much emphasis is put on discovery, that a lot of things that are being discovered now will perhaps never be recapitulated in a human and thus never be possible to be translated and more effort should be put on translation?
1: No, I actually, I think discovery is a huge part of the process because you don't know what you don't know, right? And something that you thought might not be important years ago could actually turn out to be incredibly relevant. So I think that discovery, biologic discovery, is so critical. And even studying animals and systems that, for the sake of understanding them, is really important. Biology has some really interesting threads that are woven through species that are relatively constant. And so understanding those evolutionary ties is, is really important in just understanding how organisms work and why they fail. And there's just a lot of cool biology out there. I, it's like, why do elephants live so long and apparently not get cancer? Why do dogs only typically live 10 to 12 years and so many of them get cancer? By dissecting those, the sameness and the differences out, then you may actually discover some really cool things that have direct human implication.
0: I guess the, perhaps the reason why I asked that question is because when it comes to translation, I guess you've got a blaring siren going out that there are all these problems that need solving, but I guess, as you've mentioned, I think getting all of the information required and process would lead to better outcomes than just focusing on the data that we have now, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I think just in general, the translational machinery has been very longitudinal for decades. You plod through the in vitro studies, you go into animal models, you do safety and toxicity testing, then you go into phase one, then two, and then three human studies. And that um, is is why I think the system is a bit broken is that it's not flexible. It doesn't tend to engage all the stakeholders up front, that the process of work in discovery is often very disconnected from the human endpoint. And as we get closer and closer to truly broadly engaged multidisciplinary team science, which really is something that has evolved over time and more recently has really grown exponentially, that we'll get better at problem solving. But it's translational processes are unlikely to be effective if you don't have all of the players at the table when you start
0: could i ask what questions you faced during the development of the canine cancer atlas and or at least that you personally faced and i guess how were they overcome
1: i think for the the atlas there were challenges that related to the correct antibodies that we would need for the identifying regions of interest. That was a challenge that actually Nanostring partnered with pathologists on and it was really great to have that partnership. We were able to provide tissues across from all organ systems to be used in the validation process. And there's always a concern that you're not going to get all the targets you want on your panel. And did we miss some critical targets because it's not a whole transcriptome atlas that's it's just a it's got 2000 is that enough so i suspect at some point we will have expanded that that target list and we'll spike in some additional things of interest as we learn more So I don't actually think it was that challenging. The largest challenge, again, was the antibodies, just because that has been such a challenge for us just across the board over decades, having enough antibodies to do the cell identification that we need, both on flow cytometry, on tissue sections. And it's getting better. I think the technology to make antibodies is another thing that's been completely revolutionized. We will probably have more of those as we move forward. So I would say the process was actually fairly easy in large part because we had already had cooperative work before and we had the Encounter panel that we could use as the scaffold to build the cancer atlas.
0: Could you discuss any future directions utilizing the panels?
1: So we have a number of ongoing efforts right now that are using both Geomix and Encounter. Those include much of what I mentioned before, which is the paired baseline and relapse samples, understanding the differences in the immune landscape that are associated with organ-specific metastatic disease, tying those to changes in circulating tumor DNA and RNA profiles. So really what I would say is that We're taking a true multi-omics, multi-platform approach, which is that we're gathering as much data as we can from each patient at each time point and integrating the Data generated from the assays that we're running to better build an immune profile of those patients at baseline and as they progress to failure, either in the context of a treatment or the normal disease course. So, we're particularly interested in understanding how we can flag early failure of an immunotherapy in a liquid biopsy approach by identifying key parameters of failure in the geomics and encounter data sets. So what has changed and can we then use that to identify the failure earlier on before it's erupted into something that's no longer treatable?
0: For a veterinarian, how would you encourage them to look at research in this manner?
1: So what I would say is this, is that you don't have to have a PhD in immunology to be engaged in immuno work. In fact, we routinely build multidisciplinary teams. And those teams often have individuals that have an immunology focus. And our more recent team that was funded by the NCI has two people who have a focus in immunology, one who is a clinician, one who is not, people with a focus in comparative genomics, et et cetera. And so you only need to have a team that works well together, that has the expertise and you yourself don't have to have it. And so I would say that the most, I guess the most fun I've had, and people think of research as hard and prone to failure and yes it is, but it's much more fun to problem solve in the context of a multidisciplinary collaborative team than to try to do it by yourself. And you often get really cool and interesting ideas by working in that setting.
0: That's something that I've heard a lot lately. I think to quote one of my other researchers in Australia and friend, he says, spatial takes a village and I suppose research takes a village. And then having all these brilliant minds, not necessarily being very research focused, it could be veterinarians who get samples, but then speaking to one another and using each other's expertise to have like that collective knowledge to drive research forward is the way that you're proposing is the fun and ideal way to do it.
1: Yeah. Yes, it is. It is fun. It's, but I think it's also just much more productive. And I think at the end of the day, ensuring that you have the beneficiary of whatever it is you're working towards involved in the conversation, that stakeholder engagement at the outset is really important for ensuring that even if you, you know, there are plenty of successful medical and scientific discoveries that have had issues with translation due to public resistance. And it's in large part, that's due to lack of stakeholder engagement at the very beginning. That's classic with some of the new vaccine approaches where people don't understand them. They weren't involved at the outset. And I think it's, again, at the outset, making sure that your team includes representatives from the public that are going to benefit from whatever it is that you're developing.
0: I think that's a great way to end the episode, actually, getting buy-in and being personable to, to get the public behind your back. Thank you so much for joining onto the podcast.
1: Thank you for your time.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. If you would like to know more about Nanostring's product and panel offerings or speak to a member of our staff, please visit nanostring.com. You may also get in touch with us through LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter. The links to which are in the description.